Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick, and this episode is part of our Bar Cart Hardware Series, where we take a deep dive into the equipment that you need to make great drinks at home. But first, I wanted to just quickly let you know that we've got a few new products up on the website for you to enjoy. These are a selection of shrubs from our friends over at Shrub District who make really excellent and cost-effective cocktail vinegars that really help to brighten your drink. And of course, the nice thing about shrubs is that you get your acidity from the vinegar and the fruit, which means you don't have to worry about juicing a ton of citrus all the time. And if you want to learn more about shrubs, please check out episode nine of this podcast where we chat with friend of the pod, Charlie Birkinshaw, about shrubs and mocktails. The Shrub District flavors we'll be featuring this spring on modernbarcart.com are blueberry basil, ginger, strawberry dill, and just grapefruit. So a really nice wide-ranging palette of flavors there. These are 250 milliliter bottles, which is roughly 12 to 16 servings, and we'll be selling them for $10 a bottle on modernbarcart.com. And of course, now you get free shipping on all orders over $40. So if your shopping cart is sitting right below that threshold, these four tasty flavors from Shrub District can help you unleash that free shipping confetti party on your next order. Now, for today's featured cocktail. As you may have noticed from the title of this episode, we're talking about muddlers and the role that they play on your home bar or bar cart. So it's fitting that we feature a drink that requires a little bit of manual persuasion to unleash its full potential. And the proof is right in the name. Our featured cocktail is none other than the Whiskey Smash, and this is a very easy drink to make if you've got some mint and lemon around, because really about the only other ingredients are sugar and whiskey. To be more specific, you need two ounces of whiskey, rye or bourbon here, half ounce of lemon juice, a half ounce of simple syrup, and some mint with a little bit reserved for a garnish. You're going to muddle the simple syrup and the mint in the bottom of a cocktail shaker. Shaker here, not a stirring pint. Then you're going to add ice, lemon juice, and whiskey. And at that point, you just shake until chilled. You strain into your glass of choice and then garnish with another sprig of mint. This drink is about halfway between a whiskey sour and a mint julep. And it's a super easy crowd pleaser to break out when the warm weather hits and you start thinking about firing up the grill with some guests. And now that you've had an opportunity to make yourself a drink, let's get to the main attraction, my interview with woodworker and muddler master Brendan Donovan. I ran across Brendan and his work casually on social media, and I was really drawn in by the beauty of the muddlers that he made. And since I was always that kid in woodshop who got like a B minus for effort but not results, I was curious to learn about how these beautiful muddlers actually got made. And then 
how to use them properly. Brendan's a really fun dude to chat with, and you can tell just how passionate he is about his craft. Some of the things we discuss in this episode include how a handcrafted muddler is turned and assembled, different approaches to muddling certain ingredients from sugar to citrus and beyond, the ergonomics of the muddling process and how muddler's shape can affect results, why Brendan enjoys craft cocktails despite a limited ability to perceive flavor, a few speculations about Nikola Tesla's elderly affinity for pigeons, and much, much more. This was a really fun episode to record, and to show you all out there just how much we love you, we're going to do a social media giveaway of one of Brendan's gorgeous muddlers. So, if you're not following at Modern Bar Cart on Instagram, you should be, because we'll be announcing this contest on Thursday, February 15th, 2018, which is the day this episode first airs, and we'll select a winner by the end of the day on Friday. So get excited and stay tuned to your Insta feed for the chance to win. Now, please enjoy my conversation with the maestro of muddlers, Brendan Donovan. Brendan, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. So today, folks, we are talking about a bit of a specific topic. Uh, It's in the bar cart hardware category, and we're talking about muddlers with a guy who makes them. So, Brendan, can you introduce yourself and tell folks the stories of how you got into muddlers? Well, my name is Brendan Donovan. I own a brand new little company called Muddled and Rolled, and I've been turning, doing woodworking most of my life, and I made some rolling pins for friends, and they like the rolling pins, but they seem to want muddlers more. So that was kind of the evolution of that. Last year they went, well, what do we get this year? And it kind of came down to, well, I could probably make a pretty solid muddler. Nice. So that's where we ended up being here now. Cool. So what is turning? For those of us who are, you know, such as myself, who are not uh, into or talented at the handmade type of woodworking stuff, what is turning? So turning is implied that you put a piece of wood on a lathe and you're spinning it between centers. So you basically apply a chisel against your tool rest to profile it to the proper shape. Okay, so you're basically taking a cylinder or you know some shaped piece of wood that's consistent, and then based on uh, the way that you apply that chisel, you're kind of shaping it. Yeah, it usually doesn't start out consistent. The first part of the process is making it consistent, and then you work with it from there. Gotcha. Okay, so we'll get into maybe some of the more fine-tuned aspects of what it takes to actually make a muddler, but first of all, let's just take the step back. I like to keep it very basic when we talk about anything. What is a muddler, and what is its role in the home bar and kitchen, at least as you've used them? Well, a muddler in its very simplest form is something that you take to mash other ingredients into whatever you're doing. And that's an inexact thing, but it really is. I mean, it's kind of a pestle that's missing its mortar. You use the glass as opposed to a traditional you know, bowl-shaped mortar, and you inspire ingredients into whatever you're drinking in this case. So it seems like you're kind of taking something that's pent up in the ingredients, and you're releasing that flavor. Right, and it's critical that you're not doing this in, in a terribly aggressive fashion, because what you're really looking to do is sort of inspire oils and other compounds out without just obliterating, like mint, for instance, where it becomes kind of bitter if you're getting the chlorophyll into your drink. 
So it seems like a really simple process, take stick, mash thing. It, it's a little more nuanced than that, particularly depending upon what you're muddling. Yeah, and you mentioned a mortar and pestle, and so you're kind of – one of the ways that we're defining a muddler here is kind of a uh, pestle, right? The pestle is the thing that does the, the grinding in the mortar and pestle, right? Correct. So it's kind of a pestle that's disembodied from its mortar, and usually when you come across these in either an apothecary setting or a, a home – kitchen setting it's for grinding whole spices right generally yeah that's predominantly how i use mine if we're i didn't make mine which is kind of funny considering <laughs> you know well i mean it kind of makes sense so mortar and pestles these are generally used for grinding dry ingredients and a muddler at least in the bar setting more often with the one with one really noteworthy exception you're going to be kind of breaking up and mashing up fresh ingredients yes yeah with the and probably sugar, but yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I was actually doing some reading as we um, approached this interview, and there's a book called Imbibe, very famous book uh, in the cocktail world, and David Wondrich uh, kind of goes back and he describes the origins of the muddler as something called a toddy stick. Have you ever heard of one of these? I haven't. I'm fascinated now, actually. So basically, the toddy stick was just a bigger version of a muddler, and Back in these old kind of backcountry taverns and inns, when people were being served drinks back in the 17 and 1800s, in many cases, these drinks were served warm uh, because ice was much more difficult to come by back then. And so if you're not going to have a, a cold drink, well, maybe you might as well just go the complete opposite direction and have something that's nice and warming. So the toddy stick back then was used to kind of mash up the chunks of sugar that they got so that it could actually be put into the cocktail in a in a way that actually mixed so um you know once ice came into the picture and shaking kind of replaced stirring in some circumstances the toddy stick got kind of banished and kind of shrunk down and that's kind of where we have our muddler from at least according to David Wondrich no, that makes a lot of sense, particularly because the sugar that they had wouldn't be pretty white, refined sugar. I mean, it'd need a pretty good beating to get into, into the mix. Right, yeah, it was pretty rough. You know, the stuff that they were getting was coming in these big kind of hunks. It almost looked like a, like a modern-day like salt lick block, almost, and you'd almost have to chisel it off. Um, so in some cases, the toddy sticks were even made of metal. And you can't really get away with that with a muddler because... At least with the base of the muddler, where you're actually contacting the glass, you don't want it. You don't want a metal muddler, right? Because then you're in a chip glass. Yeah, you'd break, you'd break a lot of glass. <laughs> All right, so um, we know that the muddler is used to kind of release some flavor from these ingredients. Um, what kind of ingredients have you come across that are typically muddled with cocktails? I really do think that mint is like the go-to. It's pretty much what I think everyone thinks of and starts with. I mean, whether that's a mojito or a julep, I mean, that's just, that's where I was introduced to it. My sister went to Cuba and there was lots of mojitos following that trip. I personally really like to do like basil or roasted or even pickled garlic and a Bloody Mary, things like that. Um, citrus, of course, is very common, although you go about that a little bit different. Those are, those are the ones that I think of most profoundly, although almost any herb that you think is going to add and part those oils could be used. For sure. You said that citrus, you'd go about that slightly differently. What, is, what does that look like in terms of you know, citrus as opposed to muddling an herb, let's say? Well, basically, you kind of throw out that whole, well, let's gently inspire it. And you just mash the ever-living crap out of it. I mean, like, if I'm, if I'm doing a pitcher of sangria, if everything in that pitcher is not a little bit afraid of me by the time I'm done, I feel like I haven't done my job. Right. 
Right, and I think there's other things sort of like in between citrus and herbs like strawberries. and I think berries are a perfect example because especially in the case of something like a blueberry, you have this um, skin. Unless you break that skin, that blueberry is just going to kind of be floating on top of your drink and really not providing anything except aesthetic value. Whereas if you can break that skin and puncture it and really get those juices flowing into the cocktail, then you really do have a fruit-forward flavor profile. Well, that's very true, and if you're going to do things like raspberries or blackberries, unless you're going to strain, you don't want to obliterate them either. You're just chasing the seeds all around your drink. Right. Very true. So something that people should probably take into account when they're about to make a cocktail that requires muddling is, all right, after I muddle this, what is the stuff going to look like, and do I want it floating around in my drink, right? Absolutely. So to that end, I don't know if you've ever double-strained a cocktail, but there's a very uh, easy piece of equipment. So like if you're going to be straining, you know, if you're going to be muddling in a regular mixing glass and then you're going to be taking something like a hawthorn strainer and a julep strainer and then straining that mixture into your end cocktail glass, um, one of the there's a step that you can kind of put in between. It's just a little handheld sieve. It's maybe, you know, six or eight inches long, and you can just... If you want to give something a really good, consistent muddle, but you don't want the seeds or like little pieces of mint floating around, then you can simply do the double strain, and that's a really nice way to kind of get around that problem. I'm way less advanced than that, but I do have a kitchen strainer that I use to like, you know, pass it through enough times that I'm happy. Exactly. But <laughs> that's kind of the same difference. Exactly, yeah, especially if you're doing batch cocktails. Whenever I'm doing, um, you know, whenever I'm juicing a ton of citrus and I don't want those lemon rind uh, fragments or, or the lime fragments floating around in there, I just put my kitchen sieve right over a big plastic bowl and I juice into that and then I'll make my punch from there. So kitchen, you know, definitely a really good recommendation there. So we've talked about muddlers, what we're muddling, um, technique. I feel like there's two things I want to talk about. There's the technique of muddling and then the design of the muddler. So why don't we just pick one of those and then, um, you know, you, you uh, give us a few insights on that. Well, let's go with design first because you're going to be looking at two major differences. You're either going to have a very smooth, very consistent business end and you're going to, or you're going to have the option of something that looks like a meat tenderizer. Okay. All of the ones that I make have the very smooth business end, as I feel like you can do. If you need to get aggressive, you still can. But you're not likely to take it quite as far and maybe go past where you wanted to be. The ones that look like a meat tenderizer, and granted, I'm, I'm not a particularly reserved human being, but it's just really easy for me to atomize things in a way I don't really want to before I'm done with it. Right. And I feel like in many cases, I see those and... Yeah, I guess a meat tenderizer is the best way to describe it. Maybe like a, a waffle iron pattern almost on the bottom of it. Uh, I see those in many cases being used by bartenders at volume bars who are often making pretty much mojitos and maybe you, you, they wouldn't even be making juleps at a volume bar. So it's really mostly like a mojito muddler that you're talking about, right? Right. You're And you're just losing the capacity to apply subtlety. For the most part. I mean, it's, right. it's a very aggressive tool. Yeah, because so when you're doing the motion of muddling, it's not like you're just dropping the muddler on top. You're kind of you're kind of uh, pressing and turning and, and grinding a little bit, right? You're introducing it to the side and bottom of the glass, not just you're not trying to smash it in one motion. Right. So when you have that meat tenderizer thing, it's going to kind of in, encourage that like really aggressive. It's going to rip things, especially mint. Right. You're going to be opening up, adding chlorophyll and things that you probably don't really want in your drink. Right. 
Gotcha. That makes sense. So you did send along some beautiful examples of these muddlers. And what I do like about having the kind of um, smoother business end, as you say, is that it's also good for sugar in a way that those other meat tenderizer styles wouldn't be. So perfect for an old-fashioned, which is the classic, the most basic muddled drink that I can think of anyway. So, you know, when I make an old-fashioned, one of the things that I do is I'll actually add a little bit. So I'll soak my sugar cube in water, uh, or rather in bitters, and then I'll add a small, maybe a quarter of an ounce of water to the bottom of it. And I'll actually, I use the the bottom of my muddler, and I kind of do almost a stirring, like a stirring um, motion that creates a slurry. And in the end, the sugar is not completely dissolved, but at least it's on its way to being dissolved. Whereas I feel like if I was using one of those muddlers with the meat tenderizer pattern on the bottom, there's no way I could get in contact, in constant contact with that sugar to make it dissolve, if that makes sense. Yeah, you end up with voids. There's just no way around it. Yeah, I mean, unless you're really going to work at it way past what would be reasonable, you're, you're just going to fight it all the way. Right. So it seems like that's a design thing to keep in mind when you're looking at muddlers is what are you going to be using it for? And, you know, are you going for, you know, shock and awe or are you going for a little bit more subtlety? That's a good way to put it. So I've actually brought my this is my favorite muddler and it's much smaller than than yours. It's actually um, it's it's part of a mortar and pestle set from. My good friend Ethan, he brought it back to me from Turkey, and it's made of olive wood, and it's very light, and it gets the job done. It has a completely flat bottom. I've really enjoyed using this for my old fashions and my muddled cocktails because it's you know got sentimental value, and you know I, I like the design of it. But it is a little bit smaller than yours, so can you talk about you know when? you started thinking about making these muddlers. How did you settle on the size and the design? Even it looks like there's a little bit of um, a, a hand grip kind of taken into account here. What did you think about when designing yours? Well, you got to kind of start at the beginning. I had, I had this really highbrow idea that I was going to use the feminine form to kind of create this gorgeous muddler. And, um, it, it didn't work for crap. Like it was uncomfortable to hold. It was, it was too short. Like it did, it just didn't do the job. So I then, of course, went back to where I should have started and started looking at muddlers that were existing and ones that I hadn't had used and the giant spoon that I was traditionally using at the time, despite, of course, being able to produce one of these things at will. I just never done it. And I sort of kind of came to the conclusion that it's cool that they make some that are like 12 inches long. Like if I want to go after a pitcher, by all means, let's do that. But I don't like feeling like my four ounce rocks glass is on the end of a pole. But on the other side of that, if if you're using a taller glass, I don't want to be banging my knuckles on the inside of the thing. And I like the larger barrel because I feel like it gives them more contact. Mine's actually, I mean, almost a little more than an inch and a half around. So it's pretty big as far as that business end. But I've tried very carefully to profile it so that it has really good contact all around the glass. And I mean, I don't know how well I managed all of this, but these were kind of the design ideas inherent in the in the design and building and testing of these. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, it does definitely, when I, when I think of using this type of muddler, I, I really think this would be optimal in like a Collins glass, um, or in a larger rocks glass. So like if I were making something like a bramble or a smash, uh, especially like these are the drinks that I think of in the summer when you're at the farmer's market and you come across a really nice looking bushel of blackberries or something. And 
you pick that sucker up and you bring it home and some so add some mint and you've got yourself a really nice whiskey smash or bramble. This is exactly what I'm thinking of using in that situation because you're right. If I was using my little olive wood muddler here, I couldn't get this down into a mojito glass and or a Collins glass and get it to do anything. Olive is amazing for that, though. I mean, that's a good it's a really good choice of wood. It's why they use it for the mortar and pestles, too. It's both hard and very, very dense grain. Right. And it's very light. Um, and, and that's not necessarily something you want in a muddler. Yours. So let's talk about wood now. You uh, have been woodworking for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. A long time. Like almost 20. Well, 20 years now. Yeah. Cool. So what do what do you know about wood? Talk about the woods that you use in here and why you selected those. You don't have those. that kind of time. You don't, you don't have that kind of time. Um, <laughs> so you have domestic hardwoods, which I do use and are very traditional, which are maple, walnut, and cherry. All of them are eminently suited because they're hard, they're pretty, they work well. Um, then you have the exotics that are are readily available, um, like the padauk, which is that orange wood that you're holding up, and the um, Wingay, which is nearly black and has a really cool grain pattern. So I kind of, I really have great affection for all of those because they're just so different. I love that orange tone that's very unique to the Baduke. Contrasting with a nearly black Wingay, I just think it looks really pretty. And they're both plenty hard enough to stand up to the abuse, which of course is, you know, really operant. I mean, I wouldn't like bang him against the maple one indefinitely because it's hard to argue with maple being about as hard as you're reasonably going to get. Right. But they're more than up to the task. So and they all have different characteristics and they all um, work very differently on your tools. And it, it really becomes relevant once you work with them enough about how you're going to put stuff together and what you can and can't do. Gotcha. So I'm noticing uh, with some of the patterns that you that you put on these um, on these particular muddlers. So you've got uh, I'm holding up a, a almost like a striped pattern right now where you're alternating three different types of wood. And I'm wondering how you is this a glued thing? It is. Um, you take well, you don't. If you can avoid it, you don't want to directly turn end grain because you have the way the, the grain of a wood goes in a very concise direction. And if you turn against the grain, it can be done, but it has a tendency to tear out. And at the very best case, you have a tendency to really have to sand a lot more than it would be ideal. So what I do is I make sure that I've got the ingrain stripes there. And then you glue, you glue them very carefully and clamp them all together. And you use the right kind of glue and it, it'll hold actually better at the – I've never had it break at the joints. I've broken them but never at the joints themselves. So it gives you a lot of options because you can basically just slice things and then decide what's going to look cool and put them back together. Interesting. Yeah, I always see these really cool cutting boards, for example, and I'm just like, how do I get the wood in there? Because whenever I glue anything, obviously I'm not using the types of materials that you are. Whenever I glue something, it's very apparent that I've glued it, and it's very apparent that it's about to break. But that's not the case with your stuff. So what kind of glue do you use? I use a, I use Type Bond 3, the green stuff, to, if you're ever looking for it at Home Depot. I mean, it has the advantages of not only being food safe, which of course is really operant because we're going to be eating things we made with this, drinking but um it also has really good open assembly time so when you're doing those complicated glue ups by the time you're done gluing if the glue on the other end is starting to set you've, you've pretty much lost that battle so it gives you the opportunity to do more complicated things without that you know panic of if i don't put the you know fear of god into these clamps this is not going to come out the way that i want it to come out and if i don't do it the next 30 seconds gotcha cool Interesting. Maybe some listeners will will get something out of that. Um, I'm always curious. The, those details to me are just like where what makes this really interesting. So, 
couple different patterns here. We've got um, this really nice almost cross pattern where you've got the cross. You can see if you're looking at the business end of the muddler, you've got that the very dark, did you say, um, I can't remember the dark wood. What was it called? Called Wingay. Wingay. And then you have the orange Baduk wood, and that is kind of interspersed with this very light cross. Is that maple? Just straight up maple, yeah. yeah. So it's very beautiful. These, and then you've got here um, one, I believe it's a a fire-scarred oak. Is that correct? That's correct. I, I like to do those because it freaks my wife out because I'm basically welding, wielding a plumbing torch and a giant pile of combustible sawdust. <laughs> uh, and the oak, it lends itself both to hardening that way and it draws the grain out in a way that I think is just awesome. Mm, yeah, so the wood grain is one of the really attractive things about these muddlers and it's really obvious that you that you spend a lot of time you know trying to enhance it and bring it out uh i grew up in a log cabin and i remember i think it was just a big old knotty pine um but it, it, i remember when i was a kid all looking at all the knots in my bedroom there was a exclamation point chasing a scared woman there was a wolf there was a uh, a flock of geese at some point, and it's just the wood has these really beautiful idiosyncrasies that really reinforce kind of the handmade aspect of the artifact, especially when it is actually handmade and not just cranked out of a factory. So uh, that is definitely something I appreciate. Is there anything else that you want to tell us about your muddlers and the things that, that you take into account and you want to communicate to somebody who eventually ends up buying your muddlers? I guess the majority of it is I, I you know, it's, it almost sounds trite, but I'm having a really good time. The fact that people have been enjoying them as much as they are and what something that I kind of did on a lark is is just intensely satisfying. So I'm going to I'm going to ride that wave as long as I possibly can. <laughs> nice. Yeah. It's it's great to get feedback, and I think that we're in a really good place to um, you know form form kind of remote communities. Uh, I'm in Washington D.C. right now. You're in Utah. We met because I sent you a direct message on Reddit, which is just possibly one of the most by design in personal you know social social networks out there for good reason, I think. But uh, yeah, this is this is really great. So I'm glad that we're able to kind of form this community, and I am definitely going to be. Uh, doing a giveaway with at least one of the muddlers that you send along, if that works, so that we can get them into the hands of some of our listeners. And yeah. so I'll I'll add some details about that giveaway um, on social media and after after uh, we jump off the recording here. But one other quick question about the process of making these: uh, you mentioned that you kind of initially began with the form of the the female figure, and then kind of made these different stylistic tweaks. Can you just bring us a little bit more along that journey and, and why you chose to start there and what kind of the steps were between that and your current like style? Well, I chose to start there because I was looking for some sort of inspiration and I had a few cocktails and that was what came to mind. I mean, it wasn't overly complicated. It's something that I very much appreciate and was going to kind of work backwards from there. So what I did as an illustrator, I pulled up a bunch of, because this is basically how I always do it, I pulled up a bunch of uh, shapely female forms and started tracing things. And then what I did is after pathing them out, I started to, to realize that once I cut the first one, that it just felt awful in the hand. And then I considered that and began to change those paths so that I, because I can't, it's really, really hard for, to be repeatable at all unless you have some sort of pattern to work off of. 
So what I then after that did is I kind of modified it so that it would feel better in the hand in over five or six iterations. Thankfully, that not that same night I was drinking those cocktails because I, I still have all ten fingers. <laughs> but that was kind of the process. It's just a matter of you just – you cut something. You think maybe this will work, and then it doesn't. And then you figure out why it doesn't, and you just – I mean, I think it's very similar to most creative processes if you look at it that way. It's just attempt and revision. Yeah, it's very much the way that we think about flavors when we're developing our cocktail bitters or our syrups. You know, you can go with a clinical lab uh, tested route and you can you can do a bunch of surveying or you can actually put something out there and just get some feedback, even if that's just testing it yourself. So that's really good. Um, I'm, I'm really grateful that you uh, were able to, you know, send out some of these samples. I'm really excited uh, about taking some pictures, putting them on our social media and getting some of these muddlers into the hands of our listeners here. And hopefully um, they will also be, um, you know, coming to visit your site, which we'll definitely list uh, before we jump off here. But before we do that, do you have time for a quick lightning round? Absolutely. Awesome. So what is your favorite cocktail and why? So this is a little embarrassing to admit, but I've, I've been drinking old fashions for the last two weeks, not really having ever encountered that. Um, I'm in Utah, so getting a good drink here is really a challenge for, I mean, it's deliberately made to be a challenge. Right. So I, and I, I'm seldom motivated to make anything complicated for myself. So I, I kind of stumbled upon that. I, I really do like whiskey and it's a very simple, very tasty way to make myself a quick cocktail and kind of get on down the road. Cool. Um, what kind of whiskey, what kind of bitters? I, <laughs> so again, embarrassingly enough, the bitters doesn't make too much difference because I have a very limited palate. Um, I have almost no sense of smell, so bitters are largely lost on me. Gotcha. Um, unless I'm just overusing to the point of like putting a sledgehammer in your mouth. But I do. I really like a Booker's if I can afford it. Yes, sir. And uh, again, that that barrel strength helps with that whole. It's like you know, kind of that lighting your face on fire experience is helpful for those of us that don't have a whole very advanced sense of smell or palate. Yes, Booker's old fashions uh, will get you there pretty quickly. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Very cool. Yeah, two or three of those, and I'm real good for the rest of the evening. <laughs> Very good. So, what is your favorite spirit then? Is it whiskey? Yeah, absolutely. I, I like Irish whiskey. I had a I had a hell of a good time at Jameson's Distillery in Ireland, and it really left a left an impact. Um, I like the Booker's. Um, I like whatever random bottle my dad is not drinking, so he sends my way. I mean, I know that's kind of odd, but no, that's great. Works well for me, for sure. So. Favorite cocktail is the old-fashioned. Favorite spirit is whiskey. If you could have a drink with anybody in history, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? And what would you talk about? So it's got to be Nikola Tesla for me. Uh, probably in 42 at the New Yorker because, I mean, I can't think of a more happening place at that moment. Um, I'd have an old-fashioned because I'd love to see how they do it, you know. Uh, and then I, he could obviously drink whatever he wanted. I'd really want to, I mean, he'd be, in 42, he'd be 85, about a year before his death. I'd want to tell him that what he did made a difference, because I always felt like it was kind of an, in, an inagnanimous end for for someone who actually had a great deal of effect. And I, I'd really want to ask him about the pigeons. Later, later in his life, he seemed to be somewhat obsessed with pigeons, like to the point of getting thrown out of several hotels because he was feeding these things. And I'd really, really like to know whether this was like just boredom or, you know, some sort of, you know, sort of 
mental illness or whether there's something about pigeons that I'm, I'm just not getting because I, I, I don't really like them very much. <laughs> That's really interesting. Well, maybe he did, he did stuff with magnets, right? I feel like pigeons have some sort of magnetic sensibility in their brains. That allow them. Yeah. Magnetic fields, all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Electricity, all of those. And then if it, incidentally or not, the New Yorker at the time had one of the largest privately owned power plants underneath it. So it seemed eminently appropriate that he would be, you know, end up, living there for his last years and end up dying there. For sure. Very cool answer. Uh, are there any books that have been influential to you? And we'll keep this wide open. It could be a cocktail book, a... Um... Well, I've got one for you. Okay, let's hear it. <laughs> so it's a, it's not really a cocktail book, but uh, one that had about as far as distillation and liqueurs and uh, infusions. There's a book called The Alaskan Bootlegger's Bible uh, by Leon... What is it? Kanea. And I feel like this is one of those books that you're supposed to be given by like a crusty old man and it's supposed to come to you all tattered and broken and covered in grease. And, and it basically just details all of these different ways from very traditional mechanical processes to make alcohol to like, I'm going to take a soldering iron and I'm going to make a column still that's pretty much as likely to turn into an incendiary device as it is to produce alcohol. But we're in the boonies of Alaska and they're not letting us drink and by damned, we're going to drink anyway. Yeah. Just it's just a fascinating book for a lot of reasons. Interesting. We have never had that one before on the podcast, so I'm excited to dig that one up online and put it in the show notes for folks. It doesn't match your normal refinement, I guarantee you, but it is a good time. <laughs> yeah. No, we like we like all sorts of texts here. Any advice for new home bartenders or people who are about to go out and maybe spend some money on a muddler? I think... Well, I'm kind of beginning that journey in a way myself, and I'm, I'm trying to get my wife into it because she does have a fully functional sense of smell, and I'll happily just bartend it for her. Um, I think it's the same thing that everybody says, but it's true in woodworking. It's true in cocktails. It's true in everything. Learn not just how to perform those basic foundational tasks, but learn why you're performing them because later that's going to be real relevant when you decide, well – should I do this? Should I not do this? Should I do this in a different way? If you've always been very phonetic about how you're performing a task without that deep understanding, it's going to limit your ability to really innovate later. Right. And I think a perfect example of that is when you were talking earlier about um, the difference between mashing up your mint and introducing it to the bottom and sides of the glass. And, you know, the question is like, well, why do we do this? Well, the answer is because there's oils that we're releasing when we bruise it. But then if we completely tear it to hell, then you're going to be introducing a whole bunch of different compounds. And that is a principle that you can apply across drinks and situations later. Right. Exactly. Good. So... What can people do to see your muddling and woodworking portfolio and contact you if they'd like to? Well, Etsy's easiest right now. I'm working on the website, which, again, is embarrassing because that's actually part of my background, so it shouldn't be any trouble. But the cobbler's kids are barefoot. Um, right. So the Etsy site's the easiest. I'm pretty easy to find. I'm uh, brendan at muddledandrolled.com as far as an email. I'm, I'm bdonovan222 on Reddit if you ever want to hit me up there. I, I lurk and or post on Reddit way more than I should as far as my wife is concerned. Um, and I'm just kind of I'm I'm rolling out rolling pins this week as far as another product offering that I'm doing. And then I'm going to I've got a couple of orders for beer taps. So I'm going to start rolling out some beer taps as well. Oh, very nice. Very nice. I love it. Brendan, thanks so much for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It was a great time. 
Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly.